0: Welcome to Dunzo. This is a podcast that explores hookups and breakups of famous lovers and friends, both real and fake, and all the discarded pop culture of yesteryear. I'm your host, Troy McKeady. Hello, you guys. It is me, Troy Mahihu. Um... It feels like it's been forever since I recorded an episode, but it's only been a week. I don't know why it feels like it's been so long, probably because this week has been so crazy. Um, I obviously want to start the episode by acknowledging the elephant in the room. I want to thank you guys from the deepest parts of my spirit, like truly the marrow of my bone is thankful for how supportive you've been during this crazy situation with even the rich you guys have, I mean, I'm I'm noticing tweets. I'm seeing uh, Instagram stories. I'm seeing you commenting on their page. I mean, that I've looked at their inst or their um the comments for their podcast, and you guys have been commenting. Like, it's really incredible. Like, it really, really made me feel so, just like validated and valid and. You know, I don't know. I just, it just felt really cool. Like I I was so nervous about saying anything because you guys know I'm not like, I'm just not that person. It's weird because in life, like if you guys knew me in like life, life, I'm so straightforward and so blunt and like, so just sort of like no bullshit. But when it comes to something like that, where it's like about me, like very publicly defending myself, like, I guess maybe because they're like this big giant business, this huge corporation. I was just scared. It's like a mom and pop gas station going after BP. You know what I mean? Like, I was just nervous. And immediately after, you guys made me feel so validated. And I'm just, I'm really, really thankful. I I love you. I usually end the episode by telling you how much I love you, but I'm starting it this week by saying, I love you so much and I'm so grateful for you. I wish I had more of a development in what's going on, but I mean, so far the hosts The hosts, in quote, of the show have run off of the internet. (laughs) They've deleted their social media. We haven't heard anything back from them. So, um, yeah, I don't know how this is going to play out. I don't know what, I don't know how this is. All I can say is that I don't know how this is going to play out. But I do know that it's fucking insane. Um, I can tell you for sure that the hosts of that show are actors They're not actually hosts, they are um, people who are hired to basically pretend to be the hosts of the show, and they have all of their notes and everything done for them, I don't even think they choose the topics, and they are hired by the company to pretend they host this podcast, and they're just reading from a script that they didn't write, so the whole thing is wild, I didn't even know that that was a thing. Molly had to inform me that that is a thing that happens in the podcasting world. So people like me and the people that I've had on this show, my friends, um, who also work really, really fucking hard and do all of their own editing and research and pay for everything themselves. And if a microphone fucks up, then they go buy another one and you know, like even right now, it's like two in the morning and this episode comes out tomorrow and I'm doing this myself and I did all the notes myself and I watched the documentary like three times. You know what I mean? Like we don't have people, I don't have a team of people just handing me shit to read and not fact checking or checking to see where it came from or anything like that. It's it's fucking wild. Anyway, I want to get off of that. I want to talk about this goddamn documentary. So I was thinking about the best way to cover this because obviously I have a lot to say and I was I was thinking about like what would be the most effective way to kind of break this down. Um, so what I decided was that I would separate this into my pros and cons. I just made like a pros and cons list of what I loved and didn't love about their approach to this story. Um, a story that, by the way, has been told from so many different sides over the years and... You know, Britney Spears is obviously something I care about so much that every time I've tried to approach her on this podcast, I've tried to come at it from a unique perspective, like a perspective that I don't see represented in the media all the time, a different way of looking at it, because otherwise, what's the point in retelling the same story over and over and over? And it just feels like so many publications and documentaries and... Whatever, they, they, they that's what they do. They just tell this same sort of like Marvel origin story over and over. And of course, there's a part of me that feels like if we are rehashing the same version of this story over and over because we're waiting for fucking Joe Sixpack from Bumfuck Wherever to care about this, like we're waiting for everybody to like jump in and care Today is the day we move on. Like we have, we're officially moving on. We're pulling away. The boat is leaving the dock. Like if you don't care at this point, any I don't know, I don't know what to tell you. You know what I mean? Anyone who isn't Jodie Foster in the movie Nell should pretty much know what's going on with this story now. Okay. If you care, you've at least clicked a link or read, you know, some sort of article or something. If you don't know anything about this, you've somehow managed to avoid anything going on with this at all, that's on you. Like, we're officially done retelling this story again, okay? I was really interested in seeing how the New York Times would tackle this situation because they have access to so much and, you know, this isn't like a YouTube documentary or a podcaster giving their opinion about what's going on. This is the New York fucking times putting forth the best resources they have to explain this really complicated, layered situation to the world, to people who feel maybe too overwhelmed to dip their toe into it. Like they want to know, and they know that there's something bad is happening And they want the best for her, but they don't necessarily know what's going on. Now that I I can understand. But to be like, Britney Spears shaved her head? Like, I just don't have time. I don't have time for Joe Sixpack. I'm over him. There were things that I absolutely loved about what they did and things that I really despised, like really, really hated. But all in all, I thought this movie was really effective. I thought it came from a really good place. And, you know, it's not often that you can say that when you're talking about a huge publication covering Britney Spears in this way, that they do come from a, a, a positive place or a place of like trying to understand her perspective or the perspective of her fans. Um, you know, these documentaries usually they have a tendency to either exploit the situation or approach it from a sort of gawking perspective. And I have more on that later in my notes. So I thought it was really effective in what it was trying to do, which is, like I said, to inform everybody of this story and get everybody on the same page. Um, I thought that was super effective, and obviously it was effective because everybody is talking about it. Everybody has opinions on Britney Spears, and I have to tell you, it's so, it's such a crazy feeling to wake up and see all of these positive um, uh, articles and things being written about her and i mean if you had told me at 15 that i would read a comment section of a justin timberlake video on youtube and it would be all people bashing him for being a chauvinist i would have slapped you across the face i would have slapped you across the face for even getting my hopes up i would have been offended i would have told you to leave my home i i just i can't believe it i but let's let's like actually get into it now though Also, as a side note, I'm starting with the positives because I'm not some psychopath. I'm not going to start the podcast berating this documentary. I'm going to start with the positives. So the first thing that I want to say is that, you know, we're now 10 years removed from the height of the violent way in which Britney Spears was exploited in the media. It's obviously really interesting to view this from a 2021 perspective, right? And we've grown leaps and bounds when it comes to discussions around mental health, body positivity, um, uh, you know, the way that we talk about sexuality, women's bodies, just women in general. And I thought the documentary did a really good job of showing how much we have Britney to thank for that shift in thinking, even if she isn't the first person that comes into your mind when we talk about stuff like this. This documentary is basically letting you know that she should be one of the first people that you think of when we talk about mental health and all of the stuff that I just mentioned because during the time that she was going through her breakdown, nobody was, I mean, the term mental health wasn't even being used. I liked that they approached this from the perspective that her fans have had for a very long time. I think the last time we had a documentary that even remotely came close to this in tone would have obviously been MTV's For the Record, which, you know, I talk about all the time, and I think For the Record has gone on to really define that time period for many people. I don't really count that E special that they did for her residency because it was so carefully managed, and it's that was just such, like, a, a product of the conservatorship. You know, nothing new. <laughs> nothing new, nothing changed. Same old shit. Um... But when For the Record came out, I feel like we were still very much in this, like, I don't know, like I said earlier, sort of like a gawking period with Britney, because it was only a year after everything had started. And even though, you know, the perspective was extremely honest in that documentary, which we all appreciate, and it's, I mean, hands down, will go down as one of the best documentaries of all time, in my opinion. But when you watch it now, it does feel... Very much like, what did you do to get yourself in this crazy situation? Do you know what I mean by that? Like, I don't think that we as a public were ready to accept the fact that we had done that to her. It was more about what she had done to allow herself to get in that situation, what she had allowed her life to become. And, you know, as if she was responsible for the way she was mistreated by the public, which is insane. You know, she was also very much still in it. It was only, like I said, it was a year later and like, there's literally a scene in that movie where she tries to take her assistant to, I think I've talked about this before. She tries to take her assistant to like urban outfitters or anthropology or something because her assistant had never been. And, you know, at the time it was one of Britney's favorite stores And she was so excited to take her, you know, just like a simple, like, you know, 2 p.m. shopping trip at Urban Outfitters, whatever. And when they pulled up to the store, they weren't even able to get out of the car because there was such a mob. You know, hundreds of people started swarming the SUV and these paparazzi started physically fighting and slamming each other into the door of the car and they couldn't physically even get out of the car. And there's this look of just complete numbness on her face. Like she was obviously really scared. But then when she realized that they were going to have to go back home, it was just numb. Like even something as simple as going to shop for an hour at a store is off limits. And it was just so, it was so sad because at that point, that was 2008. And up to that point, all we had ever really known of Britney, aside from You know, we equated happy Britney, career Britney to being bubbly, goofy, silly, just, you know, a a, a really like free spirited girl. And 2008 was our first look at this new sort of version of Britney that was very guarded, very closed off, very nervous, very shy, very reserved um, and just, you know, very sad. This is the first documentary, in my opinion, that approaches Britney Spears as a victim and not a victim of her circumstance, but a victim of us, the public. And for that alone, I think it deserves a standing ovation because this is the first documentary in this new sort of era of Britney Spears as a public figure that sides with her and her fan base and it validates what her fans have, have been saying For literally 12 years. To me, this is the first documentary that basically says, oh, wait, you guys aren't fucking crazy. And this is, in fact, an actual human being. Because if you think about it, Britney's fans have always been made to look just as crazy as she is, if not worse, honestly, just like, you know, this crazy, slutty, talentless Britney Spears and her crazy, shallow, vapid fans who obviously don't like real music. What could they possibly see in this girl? She's crazy and she's not even hot anymore. That's why I always say the Chris Crocker thing is actually so much more layered than anybody allowed it to be for so many years. And I'm so happy that he actually like finally really like stood up for himself recently. I don't know if you guys have seen, he posted on his Instagram, this basically a statement about how he was treated when he tried to defend her because You know, at the time, anyone who had sympathy for her publicly was sort of made fun of and ridiculed in the way Chris Crocker was. In many ways, I think Chris Crocker actually became the face of Britney's fan base. Not to mention, he was one of the only, I mean, I can't think of anybody else. Mind you, I'm a longtime Chris Crocker fan. Shocker. I was, I loved early YouTube Chris Crocker. I was obsessed with him. The Bitch Bell. The hair flip. I mean, like, I was like watching Chris Crocker every day. I I probably had notifications turned on if that was a thing back then. Like, I was really just obsessed with him. Like, I thought he was so funny. I thought he was so talented. And I mean, really, I just was blown away by like how brave he was to be, you know, this young teenage boy living in the deep, deep fucking hillbilly South, like the deep South. The kind of South that you hear people on TikTok say, like, Black people don't drive through this town kind of South. You know what I mean? Like, the South. And he's walking around, you know, his local Walmart with extensions and heels and makeup. And, you know, this was before anybody that I can really even think of, aside from, like, Jeffree Star, was gender fluid and in the public space. I mean, it just was not a thing. And as a little gay teenager in the early 2000s who was also obsessed with Britney, I just thought he was like the second coming of God. I thought he was fucking hysterical. Um, So then to watch what happened to him, to watch him express what so many Britney fans were feeling, fear, a genuine fear that this girl would die. You know what I mean? And he was brave and he got on YouTube and he expressed his his feelings about, the, the obsessive takedown of this girl who didn't do anything. And it just, I know that I've said this before, but it really did feel like people at that point were rooting for her to die for the headline because it would complete the story in the same way that it completed Amy Winehouse's story and Whitney Houston's story and Michael Jackson's story. And so many people It's like, yeah, well, she has to die now because that's the gig. You know, that's what happens when celebrities get themselves into these situations. And he was expressing what so many people were feeling, which was just fear. So to watch him be ridiculed and ripped apart and made fun of and parodied and memed and, you know, talked about on South Park and all this stuff and on Mari as just like this lunatic, crazy, you know, brainwashed fool like just a jester, a literal juggling like jester for expressing his fear and the possible death of this young girl. It was really wild. Another thing I wanted to talk about that I think they sort of skimmed the surface of but didn't go super deep into was the relatability behind Britney's marketing when she was first introduced. And what I believe is the real reason none of the other you know, Britney prototypes were ever able to kind of reach that untouchable, like, A-group status that she so comfortably lived in for so long. Um, Kim Kamen, who was the, she was in the documentary, she was the senior director of marketing for Jive during the early phases of her career. She said something that I thought was really interesting, that Brittany was the person that, in her teens, you aspired to be but also had a relatability that made you realize she was just like you. So she was just aspirational enough, but also relatable that like you could see yourself being friends with her. And, you know, I think Brittany's entire career hinged on her personality. I don't really think that gets talked about enough. Like her impact on teenagers was so intense And it was because she embodied everything it meant to be an in quotes, all American teenager while also being someone that teen girls could look up to for her in quotes, morals and values. And that's not to say that Mandy and Jessica and Christina and all the other girls weren't charming in their own way because they obviously were, but there, those girls were media trained to be charming In the exact same way Britney was, which, as we know now, didn't work for any of them because that was just sort of who Britney was. I will say that I think that shifted over the years. And, you know, this is another thing that I don't feel like I see people maybe talk about a lot or maybe they've forgotten. But very, very early into Britney's career, during what I refer to on this podcast as the yes sir, no sir years, um, Britney is extremely just like buttoned up. And I don't mean that literally, obviously. Um, I mean, like she follows a very strict sort of like say this, but don't say that scripty kind of thing. She's extremely respectful, extremely reserved. I mean, in comparison to who she becomes, like, she's really pulled back. She barely even uses her accent in a lot of interviews. And, you know, in most of those early, like, 1998 to 1999, um, like, public moments, when she's really on, you can tell she's under very strict restrictions to say the right thing, to do the right thing. She's young. She's not, like, you know, super media trained yet. Like, it's just... It's like this child, I mean, it, it, I mean, it's not like that, it literally is a child trying to just sort of make all of the adults around her happy, you know what I mean, and you can look at it and tell, but as her career progresses and we approach that sweet spot of like 2001 and 2002, I think that Britney's team realized that Britney was at her best when she was allowed to be herself, when she was allowed to be like a silly goofball in front of the camera. I've said many times on the podcast that I think Britney Spears is the closest thing our generation will ever have to a Marilyn Monroe for many reasons. Um, The mistreatment, the sex symbol thing, her voice, her attachment to the way we view mental health during that specific time, um, her star power, You know, not every celebrity has this, but there are certain people who really tend to come alive when they're in front of a camera. Paris Hilton's family always used to say this about her when she was a little girl, that she had that thing where if she knew a camera was on her, she just became this like awake person. Like it was like a different version of her. And I think Britney is the true embodiment of that. You know, I think Britney used to have this innate ability to treat a camera like a person, which is really hard to look at a camera and just sort of talk to it like you would talk to an actual human being, um, which always then made us feel like as the viewer, she was speaking directly to us. And, you know, she had that natural, I guess it's just like that child star thing where if she knew she was being filmed, she couldn't help but feed off of the energy of the camera. You guys know one of my sexual fetishes is to recommend Britney Spears documentaries to you. And this is one that I've talked about many times that I love so, so much. It's called Stages. And it's one that I always describe as Britney's version of Truth or Dare. And it's interesting because it's completely unedited. It's just raw footage pieced together of her existing during tour life while they're in um, Mexico City. And it makes absolutely no sense that it's so entertaining because they're not really doing anything, but it's, there's just something about her in front of a camera that sells itself. And I'm not telling you anything you don't know. This is like literally what the first 15 years of her career was built on. But I mean, I just think it's worth mentioning. Another thing that we've talked about before, but I thought they did a really good job of expressing is that. Her team essentially presented her on this silver platter for us to absolutely destroy. And the fact that she was introduced to us as this perfect ideal image of what it meant to be a good American teenager, I think made it fun for people to try and break through it. Whether it was in an interview or a magazine or, you know, just the general public, it became... Like who could get Britney to break and expose who she really is, which in the minds of the public at that time was that she was this like nasty slut who couldn't possibly be a virgin because look at how she dresses, look at how big her boobs are, look at how she dances. There's no way she's a slut. So she's not a virgin and we have to get to the bottom of it. We have to break this girl until she tells us the truth that she has had sex. Because if you think about it, instinctively, we all knew that there was no, first of all, we all know just generally that there is no perfect person. But even more specifically, there's no perfect teenager. Like no teenager actually walks around with their hands, you know, folded behind their back saying yes, sir, no, sir, to everybody all day when nobody is watching. And I can say firsthand as someone who was a teenager during the same time as her, that portion of her career felt extremely unrelatable. And if anything, I think the PTSD from being lied to during those early years is probably why we had such a hard time feeling sorry for her years later. Teenagers were never truly the people who believed Britney was a Christian virgin, You know what I mean? That was something they did to appease our parents who were going out and buying this music. That wasn't, I I, truly, I don't believe that was like for us. I really don't as kids. Otherwise they wouldn't have marketed her to also be this like virgin whore. I, I just don't, I don't really believe that the teenagers were supposed to like really take to that no matter how much they claimed it i don't believe that that was their like genuine intention if that makes sense i remember feeling like i'm sure she's like done stuff with a guy <laughs> you know what i mean i'm sure she's been drunk before because you know if my friends are like hooking up and drinking and we're all cussing and you know we're like smoking cigarettes or whatever behind people's garages like, I, she, I'm sure she is. She's fucking older than me. You know what I mean? She has to be. And since we all knew that it was a lie, we all knew she was lying. There was no way she wasn't lying. It made it fun for people to take jabs at her. And if you think about it, it was really like a very linear slow burn once we cracked the code on the whole virgin thing and confirmed that she was in fact this slut that everybody said she was. Then nothing was off limits at that point. You can literally view it as chapters. There was the like breast implants chapter and like, you know, we needed to get to the bottom of that. And then there was the virginity thing and we needed to get to the bottom of that. And we finally got our answer when Justin exposed her and, and, you know, and confirmed that they had had sex. Then it was like, okay, so yeah, she is a slut. Okay, perfect. Now what else? (laughs) Let's move on to something else. Then very shortly after that was the era of like, oh my God, how fun is it to tear down her looks? Ooh, this is fun. Oh, the girl that's been presented to us as this perfect Barbie coming out of a, you know, a Mexican restaurant, holding her belly and having a little bit of a pooch. Ooh, her body isn't as perfect as we thought it was. Oh my God, are those diet pills in her purse? You know what I mean? It was like, it became really fun for the public to just find more and more stuff about her that they couldn't believe was there which was really just like normal shit it was like oh my god Britney isn't perfect look at all this stuff She has pimples oh my god and the cherry on top is when she started smoking out in public oh my fu- are you kidding are you kidding for the narrative that she was already like she was a slut and she was white trash and she you know she was like this trashy unkept mess Because she went out in like sweatpants or whatever. Um, Or, you know, her hair wasn't perfect or she wasn't wearing makeup. Then it was like, oh, she's smoking now too. They had a field day with that. I will also say that I think once Britney got pregnant and married. And the formula that we had become so accustomed to and honestly felt like was our, I mean, it was our property. Like at that point, it was like, we deserve to look at Britney Spears and see abs. Are you kidding how dare you, you fucking bitch, you got pregnant, do you not understand that we like to see you with abs, you may not have them now, because you had a baby, you know what I mean, like, that's really, I, for the people who don't remember, I know that this sounds like I'm being sarcastic, but like, that truly sort of was the mindset, and I think once the formula was broken, because at that point, you know, it was like, the jig is up. Brittany is a pregnant woman. Not only has she had sex, but she is pregnant. There is a baby growing in her body. She is a woman now. She's an adult. You know what I mean? You, there's no more like Lolita, you know, I'm a good girl. I'm a bad girl. Madonna whore. She is a fully pregnant adult woman with a husband. And in my opinion, it felt like the world Sort of lost value in her. It was like, well, why are you necessary? If men don't want to have sex with you and women at this moment don't really want to look like you because you're pregnant, what purpose do you have? Like now you're just another famous person, a famous person that we weren't even taught to respect in the first place. So, you know, even at the peak of Britney's commercial success, when you think about it, like, during the time that we, in quotes, adored her, we never respected her. We never respected her thoughts or her opinions or her feelings. You know what I mean? We liked being entertained by her. We liked making fun of her and we liked tearing her down because she was the easiest punchline in the world for so long. I've watched this documentary two and a half times now and. The first time I watched, I was really put off by the guy from Star Magazine, sort of like trying to explain the reasoning behind publishing these photos. And, you know, he talks about how the goal, I thought this was really interesting. One of my favorite takeaways, that the goal was never to fetishize or, you know, demonize these people, but to make the reader feel some sort of human connection to them in their daily life you know, to pull the curtain back on celebrity and to say, hey, you know, Britney Spears leaves a Mexican restaurant bloated and smokes a cigarette after just like you or whatever. Um, And the first time I watched, like I said, I was repulsed by him. I was like, you know, how fucking insane is this guy to come on here and say this? And then, you know, the second and third time I was like, well, I participated in this culture like heavily. I still do. And if I think I'm so above these people, then why was I so ravenously watching these paparazzi videos from the early two thousands? Um, paparazzi videos, by the way, that usually made me feel really, really upset and sad to be honest. And I realized that in a way he was sort of right. Like part of the kink of watching those videos was the excitement of seeing a celebrity out in the wild you know, loose like a fucking zoo animal, especially during those really early TMZ videos where it was all so new, you know, access to viewing celebrities just do shit was so brand new. This was obviously before social media. So to see Britney Spears at a gas station, you know, and watch her shop around the store looking for, you know, her case of sugar-free Red Bull and get, you know, uh, uh, maybe a lighter or something and some Halloween pumpkins to hang in her car. The whole thing felt so mundane, but the more mundane it felt, the more voyeuristic it felt. And I, I honestly, I w- I'm i not kidding you. I was ravenous for these videos. I was ravenous for them. I would refresh TMZ and X-17 all day Long because you never knew what was going to happen. You never knew what they would catch. You never knew, you know, at 2 a.m. or 3 a.m., what crazy shit would happen. And they always posted the videos in real time. So if they got Paris Hilton at, you know, 2 30 a.m., doing whatever, they would post it at like 2 40. There was also the aspect of seeing celebrities interact with each other that was so interesting out in the wild. You know what I mean? Like, how do Paris and Nicole talk to each other when they're not filming a scripted reality show? Like, that was, oh my God, that opened up my entire world. I was in college at the time, as I said before, and I mean, we would literally, like, wake up from sleeping or stop doing whatever we were doing, which was probably drinking, um, to be like, oh my God, you guys, Paris and Nicole just showed up at in and out Burger at 2.30 and and I think Paris is drunk and that was like I mean that was the equivalent of watching like an Instagram live it was such it was it seems so silly now but not having that access to celebrity all day long on social media on their own terms it just it hit different especially if you just so happen to be on like TMZ or whatever at 1 a.m and something like Paris Hilton leaving a nightclub with Brandon Davis you know and them calling her fire crotch <laughs> you know like to be on the internet as that was happening at that time was seriously I, I I don't even know if I have the words to really describe the way that it felt but it was like it was an addiction for me and Seeing that made you feel like you were a part of something when, like, access to celebrity, like I said, was so closed off to the outside world, and it allowed us to see what their world was like in quotes. You know what I mean? And uh, as a teenager, like, that was, I was, it was extremely, it had a really big impact on me, obviously. Hi, and I know that I'm not the only one, just ask, uh, ask alexis nyers if it had an impact on her ask every kid from the bling ring if during that time celebrity paparazzi videos had any impact on the way teenagers acted now if we're going to talk about the positives of this documentary and the things that it got right we obviously have to discuss the fact that that justin timberlake finally got what he deserved the justin timberlake of it all um Don't quote me, but I think I can honestly say with my entire spirit that this was the first documentary ever in history to approach this relationship from a place of truth and not just straight up pure nostalgia. This was not the Britney and Justin wearing, you know, denim matching outfits documentary, which I really appreciated. I think it's a real sign of the times that the New York Times knew in 2021 that, They wouldn't be able to get away with sweeping this misogyny under the rug because at this point the people will just simply not have it like we simply will not have it. And if you serve it to us, we will take the plate and slide it away ever so gently with our fingers and say, no, thank you. Not anymore. In 2006, 7, 8, maybe, but not not in 2021. I recently did an episode of Kate Casey's podcast for her Patreon, specifically about Britney, and we talked a lot about Justin Timberlake and why people have such vitriol for him. And listen, you guys know that I I really try hard to be as unbiased as possible. Um, and if, you know, if I'm going to do an episode like this where I know I am completely biased, I'll at least try and view it from other sides for the sake of having an interesting conversation And what I would never deny about Justin Timberlake is that he is literally so talented, like beyond. If Future Sex Love Sounds pops up on my shuffle today, ironically, I still listen to it. But I I think to know Justin Timberlake, to really know him is to know that his entire career is built on the backs of women that he has stepped on along the way, specifically Britney and Janet. If you think about it, Justin Timberlake was really a version of Taylor Swift during his time because he was genius at media manipulation and controlling the narrative. Justin knew exactly what he needed to do, not only to get in front of this breakup, but to use it to his advantage. Justin very meticulously crafted this super disingenuous image of being a heartbroken devastated musical prodigy you know what I mean just like this musical genius whose heartbreak led to this incredible album and you know as Diane Sawyer so eloquently put it she hurt him so bad that the only thing he could do was put it into a 13 track album called Justified And if you wanted to know his side of the story, well, you'd better go out and buy your copy. (laughs) And listen, I mean, if you've, if you have gone back and listened to my old Britney episodes, if you are not new here, if you are new here, hi, um, you should definitely go back and listen to my old Britney episodes. There's many, many to listen to. But if you're not, you know that, I mean, by the time that relationship ended, Britney and Justin were nowhere near the teenage lovebirds that, you know, that the press claimed them to be. And, you know, that relationship had become this big, giant, multi-million dollar business. And also, by the way, Justin had hooked up with other people during that time. So, the fact that he was able to spin that narrative so easily and that people didn't even question it i mean for the love of fucking god barbara walters sat across from this man a woman who has interviewed every president for the last 60 fucking years and allowed his deep fried fucking noodle haired ass to croon her and 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 bamboozle like no president has been able to get past barbara walters with a lie But Justin Timberlake sat there and gave her dimple dimple and she ate that shit up. Can I also just say really quickly, completely off topic, that I don't know if you guys can hear the fan in my computer right now. For some reason, it's deciding to blow. I mean, it's really giving like an 80s hair metal fantasy. It's blowing really hot air, super loud and like hard. Um, So if I can hear it, I'm sure you can hear it. And if you do, I'm sorry. I don't know why it's doing that. It never does. Um, Probably not a good thing, but you know, this is uh, this is how the sausage gets made. I wish that I had Amazon to pay for me to fix it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really have a ton more to say about Justin because I mean, we have beat that story to absolute hell and back. And, you know, I can't imagine what more can be added to the Justin narrative, but I am so delighted. I cannot tell you how happy it makes me to know that the entire world has caught up to the very blatant, obvious, public misogyny that this man has been exuding for the past 10 years. Like, I don't know what took so long. I don't know what took so long for many of these things, but like, I'm glad that everybody is on the same boat. I can't really say that this documentary had many fresh takes aside from a very small handful, but the one that I found really interesting was the connection to Monica Lewinsky and how as a society, we were all very sort of buttoned up about sex at that time. Um, You know, I was too young to like make that connection on my own. So to see people talk about it and explain it was really fascinating to me. And, you know, as a millennial in my 30s, who I, I remember 1999, it definitely feels like it was a really long time ago. Like, it does feel that way. Um, In my head, I know that it was a long time ago. It's not like I, I, like, I can barely remember it in many ways. But to see raw footage of Britney pressing play on a fucking boombox at the mall while wearing a giant Tommy Hilfiger puffer coat, it really put it into perspective for me. It just hits different when you see, like, those raw home videos and versus like music videos and movies and stuff that are like glossy. And, um, I don't know, it's, it's just different. Like it to see that, like, you know, camera on the shoulder video of her at the mall of America or whatever, it just really, it, it put a lot of things into perspective. And one of my favorite podcasters, Molly Lambert has this theory that they talk about a lot on Night Call. If you guys, Night Call is done now, but it's got a really, really good archive if you want to go back and listen to just like, I think one of the best podcasts ever. It's so good. It scratches this really, really weird itch that I don't really know how to describe, um, but it gives like public access vibes, which I love, like late night public access. Anyway, Molly Lambert has this theory that the decades don't really start until like three to five years in. And then they bleed into the next decade. For example, like the 80s don't really start until like 85. The beginning of the 80s is still very much the 70s. Like it's hard to tell anything apart. But then when you look at like 1999, you know, like I guess I just never really thought about how 90s 1999 was. Because in my mind, it's like the millennium, <laughs> you know what I mean? The introduction of technology, it's like metallics and, and, and computers and things, you know what I mean? It's like, it's the future in quotes, but 1999 was still so 90s, so conservative, so buttoned up. It was just such a different time. And it's interesting because Britney has obviously been famous for a really long time and she was one of the most famous people in the world during quite possibly the biggest transitional period in American history, the introduction of the internet and the effect it had on fame and celebrity and the way we think. Um, Britney is a pre-internet star who had to deal with us as a nation working out the kinks of the fucking millennium, all that old world bullshit that we hadn't figured out yet, like how to treat mental health or how to refer to it as mental health and not like calling people crazy, how to talk about female bodies, um, how to approach conversations surrounding young women, uh, the way young girls should be allowed to dress. Like it was really, I mean, we were in some fucking pilgrim times. She also became famous during a time when there was no policing on the internet. And it's like, you think the internet is crazy now at in 1999, it was the fucking wild west. And I, I mean, you would be surprised at how many like weird right today, like every time I do a Britney episode, I come across so many weird, creepy, honestly, really scary. (laughs) I'll be honest, terrifying angel fire websites that are like, I want to kill Britney Spears.com, Britney Spears should die.org. Britney Spears is a slut.net. These weird fucking internet websites made by teenagers of them, like talking about hanging her and cutting off her fake boobs. And, you know, click here for a gallery of Britney Spears being a slut. And it's like all these pictures of her with like in like bucket hats and fucking like frog hoodies. I'm like, I don't, I don't, I really don't get it. And I don't want to. The 1999 of it all led me down this, like, mental rabbit hole of thinking about the fact that, so Britney Spears was obviously, like, the star of the 2000s, right? She became famous at the end of the 90s, but she was the star of the 2000s, and I think it kind of helps make sense of why we were so cruel to her when you compare her, I don't know what you would, I mean, let's call it. Uh, it was a public execution. I don't know what else you would refer to it as. When you compare Britney Spears's public execution to the like O.J. trial or like Tanya Harding, the only other things that I can think of—not the only things, but like two major things of the '90s that really represent that time period—the O.J. trial and everything that happened with Tanya Harding and Nancy Kerrigan—really played out in the press, sort of like a soap opera, right? which is very of its time. Both of those stories felt like something that could have happened on General Hospital easily. And the media covered it very much like a soap opera because it's the world that we were living in during the time. And I think Britney's situation is interesting because it played out almost like a trashy reality TV show because that's the world that we were living in during that time. And in many ways, what she was going through even though it was really dark and really sad, it almost feels like the world looked at it like it was gonna, like it could air on VH1. Like in between I Love New York and I Love Money season two was like Britney Spears's public mental breakdown. It felt like a trashy reality show. It was covered and interpreted by us like a trashy reality television show. We're approaching the ends of my positive list here. Um, I also felt like the documentary did a really good job of choosing who to speak to for the most part. Um, I really loved hearing from the executives from Jive during the early years and her dance instructors and, act. you know, the, the early vocal coaches and stuff like that. Obviously, Felicia, um, the Star Magazine guy. Like I said, I thought that was really interesting. I liked hearing from the lawyer and the paparazzi guy, I thought they all added a really interesting narrative, and they did, I think, represent um, these different sort of chapters of her entire life, but I think that pretty much covers everything that I liked about the documentary, <laughs> that pretty much covers everything I liked about the documentary, I mean, uh, you know, aside from that, it, you know, we'll talk, we're gonna talk here in a minute, um, I need to expel these things, I'm covered in body thetans right now, so let's let's just get this over with. I didn't find anything particularly revolutionary about this movie. I approached watching it with like a really positive outlook, especially because everybody was so excited about it. And I really wanted to be optimistic. You know what I mean? Like I'm excited that people are so excited about this and that it, the story is so visible. Um, you know, I mean, the 15 year old boy in me is screaming because I go on Google and And it's all these positive stories about like, we're sorry, Britney Spears, and we should have respected Britney. And I can't believe what we did to her. And it's just like, it's really, (laughs) it's overwhelming for me. Um, So that part of it, I'm freaking out about. And like I said earlier, I think the movie was really effective in getting everybody kind of on the same page and, you know, getting everybody informed. Um, I thought it did a really good job of like sort of tying up the story in an effective way. Now, with that being said, <laughs> there's another side of me that feels like the story has still really has yet to be told. And I guess maybe a part of that is because Brittany herself has yet to be able to talk about any of this um, publicly. But I just wish the documentary would have taken this opportunity to do that. I love hearing the opinions of her fans and other people You know what I mean? But she's the person that we've heard from the least in the past decade. We've heard so much from uh, media outlets and reporters and journalists and fans and, you know, and and podcasters. I'm including myself in that. It's like, we've been the authority on this girl's life for so long. And it's like, it's like, first of all, let me just say, I didn't think Britney herself was going to like pop up in the documentary. I'm no fool. But What upset me is that the New York Times has access to 30 plus years of the most photographed, filmed, talked about person, and they barely featured her in her own documentary. I just thought that was so, I mean, aside from like, you know, photos and quick little tiny itty bitty video clips, they barely featured Britney a girl who we've all established has has not been able to express her own voice and they chose to barely feature her. I just, I don't get that. There was a moment at the beginning of the documentary where, where Felicia said, the reason I agreed to do this interview was because I wanted to remind people of why they fell in love with Britney in the first place. And what better way to do that than to show her and I hate to think that, like, misinformed people are going to come out of this documentary with this narrative that Britney is, you know, this broken bird. Like, she's this broken, quiet, meek individual who can't express herself and, you know, and is voiceless and she's a broken doll. Um You know, these people are going to leave this movie thinking they've learned everything they need to learn about it without knowing, by the way, that Britney herself has been so open and has expressed her own thoughts about this situation for years outside of for the record. I'm talking like stuff about her dad and her management. And, you know, she's been much more vocal than I think sort of the general public realizes, because like I said, they this broken doll narrative has been pushed with her for so long now. And it's not true. Like to me, it's just like, if you're going to take the time to do this, why not mention the fact that Britney has said to the public through letters that have been manipulated by the media, by the New York times, by the way, letters that she put out to the press that were fucking chopped and screwed, uh, to leave out all of the stuff about her being, basically held against her will and being abused and having, you know, an alcoholic dad who passed addiction issues down to her. Like there are, there's so much documentation of Brittany herself being so vocal about this situation. And it does a disservice to her to not show her talking about it when it's so easily accessible that it's all over YouTube I don't think much music will mind if you use some fucking interview from 2000 whatever. And like, obviously I wasn't privy to what was discussed before filming, um, of like what was on or off the table or whatever, but you got Felicia, you got Fee, to speak her fucking mind for the first time in 20 years. And you featured four minutes of her talking about old photos in the good old days and and how things changed after the conservatorship. You got Felicia to sit down for an interview. And I'm not expecting that, you know, Felicia would rat Britney out or, you know, expose a bunch of stuff, because that's not who she is, and I nobody would ever expect that from her. But I would, I mean, I would have appreciated more Felicia time, and this is no shade, than like, you know, some some twink from LA talking about Britney like as much as i loved hearing the perspective of the fans it's like i don't need we just watch this shit i don't i don't need to see 30 40 minutes of people outside the courthouse from 2 weeks ago felicia is in this documentary i want to i want to hear from fucking felicia i mentioned earlier that when i record these Britney episodes i try and approach it from like you know, having a unique perspective, because otherwise, like, literally, what is the point? This is a story that gets told all the time, all over the place, all over the internet. So why, as the New York Times, take this moment where the entire world is watching and tell a version of the same fucking story that we've gotten for years? Why not say, you know what, you know what they don't talk about a lot They never mentioned the fact that Britney snuck away from her team and went to Kiss FM and on her own released a song to the world called Mona Lisa against the will of her record label about a pop star having a mental breakdown and dying. That would be an interesting thing to bring up. It was very public, it's all over the internet. Every Britney fan knows the song. It's not like it's some underground track that you have to, you know, like download from fucking Kazaa. It's it's a very popular Britney song. You know what I mean? Let's talk about the fact that during the time that Britney had this weird sort of back and forth relationship with the paparazzi because they were the only people in her life that she fell in love with one of them. And they genuinely fell in love. And he was a huge, huge part of this story. Why not bring that up? This whole thing was narrated in such a cliche, you know, VH1 driven kind of way to me. It was basically a retelling of what I call, you know, her folklore story. Like this is her origin story. At this point, Britney Spears's origin story, her rags to riches tale, has been retold more times than Peter Parker becoming fucking Spider-Man. If you are older than 12 years old, and you don't know at this point that Britney Spears comes from a small town in Mississippi, and her family was poor, and they had to hunt squirrels, and she rose to fame overnight, unfortunately, there's no hope for you. I don't know what to tell you. You're the girl who shows up at a party five hours late, and you're mad that everybody's drunk. Like You really are that girl. Like We cannot keep catching people up on this story i'm so happy that this documentary came out and i'm so happy that it got everybody on the same page and like i said in that sense it was really effective but at this point if judy from nebraska blacked out the last 20 years and and forgot that britney spears shaved her head baby you missed the boat we are like i said we are leaving the dock i don't know what to tell you you know what i mean we've got to move on from this there's more to this story and there's so many more interesting things to be told to the public that I really feel like would have a huge effect. And I guess you could make the the argument that this documentary was made for Judy from Nebraska specifically to catch her up. But what's stopping you from incorporating something that we haven't seen be beat to death? Do you know what I mean? Like, why not appease the people that have had to sit through this for 13 fucking years? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I just don't, I don't understand. When you are the New York Times, and there are peep, there are 15-year-olds on fucking YouTube making better documentaries than you, there's a problem there. I also know that this contradicts everything I recently said on Liz Bentley's podcast, Liz Explains. Liz and I recorded a Grey Gardens episode together, and we talked about documentaries going through this weird phase now where they're like, it's like somebody on her, um, on her comments called it the fast fashion of documentaries through streaming where it's just like, you know, documentaries like Tiger King come out and it's like, nobody's going to watch that again. You know what I mean? It's like, it's fast fashion. Like nobody's going to wear that shirt again. Cause there's a hole in it and it costs $2 to make. And I think I still kind of stand behind the fact that documentaries should be an hour to however, you know, an hour and whatever long, I think that they should be one singular thing. And this idea that, you know, a 14 part documentary is going to hold people's interest. Like I'm just kind of over that. But when you're talking about Britney Spears, take it from somebody who has done this several times. You have to break it up. It's too much story. That was an hour and 42 minutes long and it was still too much story. It's too much. It's too layered. It's too complicated. It's too nuanced. There's so much going on in each sort of chapter of this girl's life. It's too much to try and sum up into one single, one singular piece of work. You have to break it down. It's got to be broken down by chapters and otherwise you're going to miss a shit ton of stuff, especially if you're going to spend, you know, 30 minutes talking about the Mickey Mouse Club for the love of fucking God. Like if I have to hear one more time how Britney... (laughs) got an audition for the Mickey Mouse Club, I am going to jump out of a window. I want you guys to know that. Speaking of Felicia, again, I do want to end this on like a semi-positive note. Um, There was a part in the documentary where Felicia talked about how when the conservatorship happened, Britney's management all kind of switched up and the team switched and all of a sudden Felicia was no longer involved and she was like working the door and Britney only had like four people that she was allowed to speak to on a regular basis. And you can really feel that change take place after the conservatorship is in place, like during circus, you can really feel that, you know, as a young person who experienced Britney in real time, um, there was this sort of like, you just sort of knew everybody involved. Like you knew Larry, you knew Felicia You knew that when Britney was sitting down in an interview that there was a chance that she would look over at Felicia and go really deep into a really Southern accent and say something really silly or goofy to Fee. And you knew that she was like always going to be around Larry and you knew all of the moving parts. And it was like the Britney orbit. It just made sense. It was what it had always been. And it made sense. And then the conservatorship happened and it was like these people showed up and started managing her career. These people who very clearly didn't know anything about her. These people who didn't take any time to try and understand what was in place before. It didn't matter. You know what I mean? As long as she was out there on stage dancing and working and making money. And that part of it made me really sad. You know, the fact that, you know, Felicia was demoted and I've always said that, you know, I think Britney's job was made a lot easier by the fact that Felicia was with her and Felicia always gave her a sense of home and a sense of normalcy and protection so when that was taken away and she had nobody to just be silly and goofy with and nobody to talk to it's really you know 13 years of that can really 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 wear on you I was talking to my best friend Katie the other day about this, and I was saying, like, you know, we're all, we've all been emotional fucking wrecks through quarantine, through the pandemic, and it's been a year. Imagine doing the pandemic 13 times. Like, I I can't even wrap my head around it. I also obviously have to end the episode by just saying the fact that Lou Taylor wasn't even mentioned in this documentary is an absurdity it is literally absurd you're gonna do a a documentary about britney's conservatorship and not mention lou taylor absurdity you guys i think that's it i don't think i have anything else to say i I, i've noticed the Thetan sort of slowly leaving my body um i'm body thetan free which means i think that i've said everything i need to say aside from the fact that i adore you i love you so much and I just want to say again, thank you so much for coming through for me this week, and having my back. And um, yeah, I mean, we're gonna be along for this ride. I don't know what's gonna happen, but we're gonna be along for the journey. Um, and I feel much better about it knowing that like you guys are so supportive. And also, by the way, not like psychotic. Like none of you were commenting really terrible things on their page or anything like that. It was all really just like constructive and, and nice. I don't know. Anyway, I love you. I'll see you next week. Bye. Thank you for listening to Dunzo. This podcast is a part of the Solid Listen Network. Please take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe if you haven't already. Also, be sure to check out our Patreon at patreon.com solidlisten for exclusive content. You can follow me on Twitter at Troy McGee, and you can follow the podcast on all forms of social media at DunzoPod. That's D-U-N-Z-O. Thank you to executive producer Molly McAleer and coordinating producer Nicole Matthew. Seeking the truth never gets old.